Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. You've been working hard, haven't you? I have. I've been making a programme about the new Beatles series on Disney+. And who are the people you're interviewing for it? Well, I interviewed your friend John Harris, ah. who people will know as Guardian journalist, yeah. but he also is the guy entrusted by the Beatles company, Apple Corps, to go through all the transcripts and make the official companion book. Has he written the book? Yeah. Wow. It's it's really good as well. Um, the guy called Tony Bramwell, who was their childhood friend, who was in the uh, in the building on the day they did the concert on the roof. Wow! But he went up there, and then it was too cold, so he came back down again and didn't watch it. Wow! Which I think that that would have been you in that circumstance, wouldn't it? It would have definitely been me. You are a bit what we call in the North Nesh. Well, but hang on a minute. I do cold water swimming at eight degrees, so just hold your horses here. I mean, that's a, quite non-Nesh in my view. You are bemoaning the ambient air temperature a lot of the time, though. What, you think I'm a whinger is basically what you're saying? No, I, th- I think you, you are somebody who maybe in a different life would do better in a warmer climate. Maybe that's right, Californian climate. Can't you do a Nick Clegg? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get a dry... a, a towel. <laughs> it sounds, like, really boring. I'm going to get a toweling robe for Christmas. It's, not, it's called a changing robe, actually, I think, not a toweling robe, because they seem to be the sort of fashion accessory, or not fashion accessory, but the cold swimming accessory of choice this Christmas, I would say. Aha, uh-huh. so it's, it's like you don't have to dry yourself, you just wear this thing. And well, you wear this thing and you can also change. You don't have that old towel business. You can sort of ch- but the key thing when you're coming out of the cold water is how quickly can you change and get some clothes on. And I think this thing facilitates that, is my understanding. When you first said toweling robe, I was envisaging yeah. like a Tony Soprano-style yeah, no. big, luxurious bathrobe. Do you have anything like that? No, I'm not a great one for those kind of accoutrements. You're a pyjamas guy, though, aren't you? Ish, yeah, but what about you? We've got these robes with our names embroidered onto them that, that were an ironic Christmas present from Sarah's brother and his wife 10 years ago that we still wear every day. That's impressive. I'm not so into the bathrobes. 
Let me ask you, from, from the minute you wake up to the minute you dress for the day, how long is that period of time? Short as possible, really. Minutes? 20, 25 minutes. Are you eating your toast in your pyjamas? No. You don't leave... This is... I know this... You're thinking, why am I asking about that? This is the stuff I find fascinating. So from waking up in the morning, you go, you perform whatever ablutions you're performing, you brush your teeth, you do whatever your washing routine is, you're in pyjamas. After that, you're dressed straight away. There's, there's no going down into the kitchen, cup of tea... Not really. I'm not a great one for... There's sometimes lying in bed with the kids, which I like, but the, the, the... I always feel quite tired in the mornings that I need to perform my ablutions to sort of wake up. Do you know what I mean? I understand. Let, let me ask you a question. I'm a nudie doody. Oh, gosh, I don't think we want to go to this conversation. No, no, this is... Uh, I want your advice here, please. So, so, so I, I, I sleep in the nude and I will wander around in the morning between bedroom and bathroom in that state. It's not a nice mental image for anybody. I appreciate that. At what stage do I just need to make a life change so that I don't induce deep psychological trauma on my son and that he doesn't have to go and see a therapist and talk about my dad would walk around the house naked? No, I think it's probably a good thing to be doing, actually. Really? Yeah, I think so. But how will he, how will he ever grow to be ashamed of his body? No, I think it's good. I think you're practising good parenting. I think we should hear from our listeners, but I think you're practising good parenting. Okay. Now, should we talk about what we're talking about? Why wouldn't you want to carry on this conversation? <laughs> yes, yes, let's. It's, uh, it's uh, another good one this week. We're into the second of our series of episodes, which we're calling First They Ignore You, which is based on one of your favourite quotes, Ed. Yes. And it's a quote which was, is wrongly attributed to Gandhi. I think this is right, isn't it? I think that was Donald Trump's fault. He uh, put it up as a meme on Instagram. That's where that comes from. Although if it existed as a meme, it probably predates that. But it is, in fact, a speech by a union leader called Nicholas Klein, or at least the closest version. It's not word for word, but it's uh, that seems to be the earliest iteration of it. But it's, it's cropped up everywhere, up to and including a Robbie Williams song. Yes, indeed. So we're appropriating it, yes? We are. And it's about how ideas become reality. And this week, we're looking at the Nordic countries and specifically the way that they're way ahead in so many different ways uh, on gender equality and women's issues. Uh, 74% of Nordic women have jobs, which is way above the OECD average. There are um, policies on parental leave and on childcare are incredibly impressive. They're really good on women in higher education. They're pretty good on pay gap. They're, they're just all these different issues. So we wanted to dig into the history of those issues and see how they got there and then speculate what we can, uh, what we can take for that for the UK. We've, we've assembled some great guests for that conversation. In Oslo, Mari Teigen who is a research professor who's done a lot of work on this, from Iceland, somebody who, who was there in the struggle. We've talked before on the podcast about the uh, women's strike of 1975 and um, somebody who has the, the medals and the battle scars from those fights of the 1970s in Iceland, Kristin Astgeersdottir. And then to think about what possibilities this opens up in a UK context, we have Dr Alison Parkin, who is a lecturer and a, an independent research consultant, but amongst other things has worked with the Welsh government specifically on what we can learn from the Nordic gender equality policy. It's a really good conversation. And uh, yeah, I really like this series. 
So, uh, so what's your reason to be cheerful then? Well, my reason to be cheerful actually is in this mould. So, um, I did a event with uh, Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, this week. She is at King's College in London, and she was hosting event an event about uh, parental leave policies. Uh, and I was talking about some of the ideas in my book, including around uh, use it or lose it, father's leave. And I'll tell you what was really interesting. There was a presentation based on the uh, company, the bank Santander. And I, I, I really struck me this. They did these sort of tests on some of the employees, not tests. They did these um, sort of question and answer things with some of the employees. And basically what it said is that they've got this concept they call pluralistic ignorance, which is, and I'm going to try and explain this, but I think it might go wrong. So let me just bear with me, which is basically that people think that other people have views which are, in this case, less hospitable to men taking time off than they actually are. And so it then oh. pushes them to be less, to think that they should let take less time off. And and they tested this out by sort of get, putting some assumptions to one group and not to another group of saying, you know, uh, that basically the expectation was for men to take more leave, not less, and so on. And it then had an effect on the amount of leave that men at Santander thought they would then take. Wow. It does show the assumptions about what is acceptable and thought to be appropriate has real effects on the decisions people take. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I am a 48-year-old man. That's not my reason to be cheerful. I'm a 48-year-old man who, last weekend, went to a club with, with loud music wow. and dancing. What, which one? I will admit it was uh, it, it was a, a children's club. There's this club night called Star Shaped, which plays all the indie guitar music from my youth. And they've obviously clocked onto the fact that the people who grew up listening to that music are now themselves parents. So they put on a Sunday afternoon version. Well, that's good. You're a raver. I didn't dance. You're a raver. I stood nodding my head. You're a nodder and a raver. Or a raver and a nodder. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, for this conversation and to help us understand gender equality across the Nordic countries and the history of it all, we have Mari Teigen, who is a research professor at the Institute for Social Research in Oslo, also director of CORE, the Centre for Research on Gender Equality. Is it high in Norwegian? Hi. Hi. We also have from Iceland, Kristin. Kristin is, is very kindly given us permission not even to try to attempt her surname, but I'll give it a go. Astgearsdottir. Yeah, fine. You're just humouring me, Christina, I'm sure. Who has spent her entire career campaigning for gender equality. She is former Member of Parliament, uh, a former Executive Director of the Gender Equality Office, and, and as well as that, she has been an active member of the Red Stocking Movement, a famous movement which I'm sure we'll come on to. Is it is it a hey in Icelandic, Kristin? No, hi. 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 And then the UK perspective, and listen to this with us, and then we'll get into how perhaps we can import some of these ideas. We have Dr. Alison Parkin, who is a lecturer at Cardiff University Business School, independent research consultant, longtime advocate of gender mainstreaming. And amongst many other things, Alison led a review for the Welsh government learning from Nordic gender equality policy. She's been given an OBE for services to equality and diversity. Would you like the, the Norwegian hi, the Swedish hey? 
What do you feel most comfortable with, Alison? I think I might have to go with hi and shamai. Of, of course, yeah. Hey, hi, hamai. So, um, Mari, let, let's just start with you. Can you give us a little bit of a top of the pops? Can you just give us an overview generally of how the Nordic region does on gender equality and, and women's issues? How is life different for women in those countries? Okay, I mean, this is not an easy question to answer, but I mean, when we look at all these uh, different types of international indexes, they show that all the Nordic countries are faring much better than many other countries and high labor market participation, high political representation, especially in the National Assembly and so on. And I also think that how work-life balance has been evolving uh, in the Nordic countries are something that other countries should look closer into. And is there something in the history of these countries, beyond modern history, if we were to go back 200 or 500 or even 1,000 years ago, has, has life historically been any different for women than what you would see here in a country like the UK, for example? All the Nordic countries are, for example, also characterized by a more compressed wage structure. And this goes back to more kind of equal values being strongly held. I mean, someone would would go back to the time of the Vikings and so on and saying that there was more equality between men and women. But I mean, this is really hard to say. And it, it's also very contested. And Kristin, what, what if you uh, just give us the Icelandic picture on that? Do you have any sense of life being different for women beyond the gains made in modern history? Well, it's difficult to say. I, I think, uh, you know, life was very hard in, in, I think, all of the Nordic countries. People really had to struggle for their livelihoods. For example, here in Iceland, and I think in Norway, at the end of the 19th century, the demand for fish was growing rapidly, the export of fish to to England, for example, and other countries. And the women, you know, they had to do everything. They had to step in. They even had to go out fishing. And, of course, there are many, many other changes. The daycare system, the school date was divided, so children had to go home and, and, and have lunch, and there was no one at home. The, these were called the, the key children. They were, had the key around their neck, so they could go home and, and open open the door. But if I may imagine, one thing that is, is very special for Iceland is that the women, they always kept their name. You know, we, we kept this very old German tradition of, you know, you were the son or the daughter of your, usually of your father, sometimes of your mother, and, and you kept your name. You were always this, this independent person. And... Mari, when are the sort of major advances for women's rights and women's role in society in the Nordic countries during the course of, say, the 19th and 20th century? Actually, several of the Nordic countries were called, in fact, the housewives' countries in the 1950s, for example, in the decade after the Second World War. So, I mean, the big changes, they, they started at the end of the 1960s when, when women's employment were increasing. And, and if you look at the numbers, there's been big increase from beginning of the 1970s when less than 50% of women were employed uh, until today where almost all 
adult women are in employment. But there was interesting differences between the countries. For example, Finland has had that strong tradition for women's employment all throughout the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and and so on, and and also been much more uh, exposed uh, to wartime, etc. While Sweden and Denmark had a strong employment among women, while while Norway was coming later into it. But but today, there's very few differences uh, between the Nordic countries when it comes to, to women's employment, and especially women with small children. So that picture rather suggests, and this is obviously very relevant for us in the UK because we're trying to get to the roots of how much is this to do with the history of Nordic countries and how much is, if you like, politically determined. That analysis rather suggests that it isn't about deep history necessarily. It is about more modern developments in the last, say, 50, 60 years. Yes, I, I, I think so. I, I think that development of childcare, of affordable childcare, state subsidized childcare has been very important for, for women's employment in the Nordic uh, countries. I think there's been a kind of a mixture or balance between women wanting employment and also the development of, of the welfare states and, and the job opportunities offered by the welfare state combined with policy initiatives to get women into the workforce. And is there a suggestion that these these developments then, if you think about the, 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 the state implementing them, it's as much economic, it's about the, the benefits to GDP as it is to do with fairness? I think that's very typical for, for the kind of social democratic ideology or discourse in, in, in the Nordic countries, that there's always this balance between what is right, what is fair, and what is economic sustainable. So for example, at, at my institute, we did a counting for the government to see what does oil mean for Norwegian economy in perspective of what women's employment has meant for GDP. And clearly, women's employment has been much more important for for the economy of the Norwegian society than the oil sector has been. Kristen, maybe we can come to you now. Talk, Talk to us about some of the historical developments in Iceland that have led it to be I think, top of the gender equality index for nine or 10 years in a row. What were the historical developments in the 60s and 70s? Well, first, the heritage of the women's movement. You know, there was the baby boom generation. There was such need for for schools, for health service, and and more and more women going out, uh, working full-time jobs. So there was this this pressure. And in in 1970, the red stocking movement, started demanding equal rights for women, criticizing the, the language, the sexism, the wage gap. And it was like an explosion in, into the Icelandic society. It was such a discussion, got such an, an attention. And, and why, can you just tell people why it was the Red Stocking Movement? Well, the name actually came from Denmark. It was the Red Stocking. It, and, and I think, you know, the red collar, it, it, it means that there is something radical there is a need for change. This is a radical movement. We want to change society. So it was active from 1970 to 1982. 
and he had a, played a big role in the women's strike in, in 1975, which in, in Icelandic it was not called the strike, but a women's day off. And that because that was a well, it was partly a legal issue. If you just left your workplace in a strike, it could mean you could be fired. You know, didn't get get paid and so on. So, so the names was the name was changed to a women's day off. This was a remarkable day. The participation was enormous. It has been estimated that up to ninety percent of of women took part in this uh, this action all over the country and there were many funny stories told about that day you know the hot dog is very popular you just put the hot dog in in hot water and have some bread and then it's ready and it was said that this day hot dog sold out in, in <laughs> the country so the fathers had to take care of their their children they didn't know at all what to do well well anyway one of the leading women in, in organizing this, she was asked 10 years later, well, what happened that day? And she said, you know, it was like throwing a stone into water. The waves, they go in all directions. And that is exactly what happened. It was awareness raising. And what direction did those waves, those ripples go in, in terms of political changes? Shortly after that, you know, the focus changed from this uh, active women's movement, you know, protesting on the streets, into discussions about, well, now women have to go into politics. If we are going to change society, women have to go into politics. So the Women's Alliance was formed. I, I took part in all of this. And when this movement started, the percentage of women in, in, in the local governments was 6%. 5% in the parliament, and it rose rapidly. For example, in the parliament in 83, from 5% to 15%, and it has been growing almost all the time. I think it's 40, 48, 49 now in the new parliament. Murray, that account we've heard from Kristen, it, it talks about the power of protest and social movements to to change the representation of women, to what extent did we see similar movements in the other Nordic countries to get the kind of change that we saw in Iceland? This is what has been called feminism, this interaction between the women's movement and politics and, and the state, pressure from below and receptiveness from above in a way. I mean, here there's also some quite interesting differences between the Nordic uh, countries where this has clearly been uh, the case in, in Iceland, in Sweden and, and in, in Norway, while, while in Denmark, the interaction was not that close between the women's movement and, and the state. I mean, Denmark was maybe more influenced by kind of um, state reluctance uh, that has characterized continental Europe, which is also is a way to explain why Denmark has been a little slower than the other Nordic countries when it comes to uh, development or, or progress or, or gender equality. And what about this other aspect that Kristin touched on there, which was one of the ripple effects of the, the women's movement, specifically the day off and the red stockings in Iceland. One of the ripple effects is you see 
women in government and how important is that more generally to why these countries do better? All the Nordic countries are similar uh, in the way that women are represented in, in the national parliaments with about 40% and has been so for a long time. And, and, and Sweden has been ahead of the other Nordic countries when it comes to women's representation in, in government. We're not quite sure where Sweden is up to at this very minute. I'll just point out that we're recording this on Friday morning. Who knows whether they will have a female prime minister by this time on Monday? Yeah, I, I, I was just going to mention that because in Norway, we, we got the first women prime minister in 1981. And then what was called the women's government with 40% representation of women in 1986. Uh, Denmark has had two women prime ministers, while Sweden, until just now, has not had a women prime minister. But still, I think the general high representation of women in uh, national parliaments has been more important than whether there is a women figure on on the top. And I mean, UK has uh, had their experience. We've had two. So, yeah. Alison, can I ask you, just holding in mind this power of the women's movement in the Nordic countries in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, just to reflect a little bit on the UK experience and the role of the women's movement, why we saw a certain set of changes in these Nordic countries around childcare and parental leave and a whole range of other issues, women's representation, politics, which we maybe didn't see in the UK. Yeah, I think some of this comes back to this egalitarian approach that Briston and, and Mari have discussed. So, yeah, I mean, you could say that in the UK, we believe in equality. But we haven't had the kind of active policy making to support it in terms of the activity of the welfare state to to underpin women's employment, the provision of childcare. And I think really importantly, the big difference between the UK and the Nordic countries is there's an individual relationship between um, citizens in terms of welfare and the state. So when they wanted to move from one economic area, era to another, the state took responsibility for childcare. And that is a kind of business case, social justice case uh, for producing the next um, generation of great citizens. And we don't do that. We, we still have childcare policies which are mainly focused on maternity. And now men can have a bit of that maternity leave. But we don't compensate at the same rate as the Nordic countries, you know, near full wages. We don't give as much time. Women have been seen as part of the household with the UK's very strong male breadwinner um, and homemaker model, rather than, you know, provide a welfare, childcare and tax system, which enables both adults to be independent in the labour market and independently viewed in the labour market. So, so we see a common factor here, which is that there is the egalitarian traditions, but there is also this issue of economic necessity. The, the, the sort of economic structure is also driving some of this sort of, in a way, leverage that, that, that women had in, in these Nordic societies? I think it's about being conscious about moving into new economic eras. So the UK has gone for a breadwinner homemaker model, and that has been embedded in the idea of the family wage and the tax structure and pensions and, and things like that. Women have been seen to be, you know, under the financial 
protection, if you like, of men in the home. And that you still see that today in some wage systems with so many of women's jobs in care and in education and in service sector only being offered on a part-time basis. And very difficult for women to make a full-time wage to have economic independence. And so that's why you see uh, lots of women having multiple part-time jobs because the areas and sectors they work in tend to only offer part-time opportunities for their work, whereas men in similar jobs but typed male will be offered to full-time contracts. So take cleaning, for example, in schools versus refuse collectors. Women will most often be offered part-time work, men will be offered full-time work and often shift working. So we're still not seeing the idea of the family wage being undermined in the labour market structure in the UK. And I know that Sweden at the moment has got active programmes to try and get more women back into full-time work and out of part-time work to to bolster this, this sense of financial economic independence for women. It's the active bringing into consideration the gender perspective into policymaking that's, that's made a big difference here. In a sort of thought experiment, Lady Thatcher was a very early female leader of a major country. She wasn't coming to this, to put it mildly, with a sort of social democratic philosophy. To what extent did women getting to the top of society and also the values they brought to it kind of, if you like, drive forward this process? I mean, maybe this is a question about movements versus leaders, partly. I mean, egalitarian culture, economic necessity, and I also think compromises between government and, and movements have been very strong and important for all the Nordic countries. I was involved in a, a study as a very young researcher in, in the beginning of the 1990s, where we were measuring to what degree women also from the Conservative Party were sharing the values of, of gender equality and uh, policy initiatives and, and so on. And there was a strong rhetoric of difference among the women politicians in Parliament and, and they were making allies around new family policies, gender equality legislation, etc. So, so yes, I think a uh, high percentage of, of women really has an impact on policies. You know, it's not enough to be a woman. You have to be a feminist. You have to want to change society. You know, th- this is what it's, it's all about. And you mentioned Margaret Thatcher and... Uh, and I remember there were some, some actresses coming from, from Britain to Iceland and saying she's a woman, but she's not a sister. And are there any other factors in this, Christine, that you think are unique or particular to Iceland? You know, here in Iceland, one of the, the explanations is that it's easy to reach politicians. We are, you know, very few people here. You know, there's about the egalitarian thought I think that is some, something that has developed. Can I just interject there? You've just been talking about the influence of the women's movement on the political setup in, in Nordic countries, and, and you asked me about the UK, but I'd just like to say something about Wales, really, that you know the women's movement working with allies on the left was key to enshrining or constitutionalising, if you like, um, the mainstream equality for all duty in first National Assembly for Wales. And a 10-year review post-devolution said that having women in the National Assembly had made a significant change to what was discussed in terms of policy. 
violence against women, care, education, economic participation for women. Um, but not only what was discussed, how it was discussed, the tenure of the debate as well. So that representation change, if you like, having an equal representation of men and women, had been shown to make a substantive change to what was discussed and the policies that were made in the first years of devolution in Wales. Mari, I feel that we've really spent some time and got some really interesting points on the underlying reasons why life is better in these ways for women in the Nordic countries. I wondered if we could just quickly now go through some of the individual policies and their outcomes. And it seems to me that the key thing, the central plank in all this, is around childcare and parental leave. Is that correct? And can you give us a bit of background on how that came to be in its various forms in these countries and and what the outcomes have been? Parental leave has obviously been very important, especially maybe for encouraging people to want to have children and also a good way of, of, of living with small children. The weeks for childcare was increased by every election period or something uh, something like that. So this was one of the issues that the parties were in fact competing on. But what was maybe especially very important in addition to the many weeks of, of uh, parental uh, leave with the uh, more or less full wage compensation was also the so-called father's quota in the leave, both to strengthen the relationship between the, the father and the child, but also to reduce the negative consequences of women taking long leaves. There's some rather small differences in how this is organized in Norway, Sweden and Iceland, but they all at least encourage fathers to, to stay at home with, with their child, while Denmark do not have a father's quota in their parental leave. So can you see the difference in outcome between the countries then? This is, again, complex. I mean, Denmark was progressing before the other countries when it comes to women's employment and uh, have had a quite well-developed childcare arrangements and so on. But Denmark is, is clearly the worst off when it comes to, to women's careers, for example. What is the biggest outcome of the policies around parental leave and childcare? Is it women in the workplace? Is it women progressing in the workplace? Are there actually all these kind of, um, again, to use Christian's ripples, what are the ripples from it? Yeah, I, I think actually the most important thing is that it helps or uh, facilitates people's work-life balance. The, the feeling of that we're in this together, we're in this together with the state in a way, when we have small children, our life is not uh, supposed to be too hard. But, but then it's, it's, it's the much more tricky question is what has this meant for women progressing in, in employment, in uh, civil society, in political life. Clearly, these arrangements have helped women's employment, but have they helped women's careers? That's a much more tricky question. In many ways, I think actually they have. And I also think that what we see when it comes to part-time work, when women entered uh, the labor market, there was much use of part-time work among women with children. 
But now families with small children generally work full time. Maybe, Kristin, you can speak of this from an Icelandic perspective, but also as, as somebody who's been an MP and, and thought a lot about women's issues. What are the important policies with regards to the workplace that have been implemented over the past three or four decades? I would say the parental leave is, is maybe uh, the most important. When you see the benefits, where you see the participation of both mothers and fathers, and, you know, the the bonds between fathers and, and children, they are stronger than before. The the men, they, they take more part in, in the housework. Men's risk behavior is, is has decreased. Not to mention the children, of course. At the beginning, the hope was that the parental leave might might help to bridge the wage gap, but that did not happen, not here in Iceland. Uh, a few years ago, there was an agreement on, on the so-called equal pay standard. Well, this has been going slowly. We haven't seen any real uh, results, but there has been a lot of work on on this what is the role of law? Talk to us about the balance of policy versus legislation. We rely very much on legislation. You know, we have have the, the law on, on gender equality, on maternal leave, on the quotas. And this is not the same in many other countries where, where there's more of an agreement. It means that if you believe that the law has been violated, you can go to the courts. And also we have built up here in the Nordic countries these institutional mechanisms, the Directorate for Gender Equality, uh, it's the Complaint Committee and, and the Gender Equality Council. Chris, I just wanted to ask if you have anything to say about gender budgeting in Iceland, because I think... There's been a number of pilots. That's looking at the impact of the budget on the different impact on, on women and men. There's been a lot of, lot of work on, on that. But I, I, I haven't seen any results recently. And, you know, it's also every resolution or, or, or law which is, is going to the parliament needs to be gender evaluated. So there's a lot of such things that, that the system is, is trying. But, of course... The most important thing, of course, is the women's movement and that there is pressure. You know, you have to keep the politicians awake, which brings me back to what you were asking about leadership. We have been lucky here in Iceland. We have had uh, well, two women as, as prime ministers. And, and there also was a coalition in, in Reykjavik. There was majority elected in 1994, which really revolutionized the schools and the daycare system. So, so this, you know, these political forces are needed. We've talked a lot about government. Perhaps you could say something about business and what is the gender equality when it comes to the private sector? This is one of the factors where the Nordic countries are more on an equal level with UK, US and many other countries. And this has been kind of a public and political embarrassment for the Nordic countries for many years. And it was an important context 
for why Norway, as the first country in the world, introduced gender quotas for corporate boards in 2003. The situation, however, is we now have 40% women in the corporate boards in, in the public limited companies, but it's, it has had very little ripple effects for the executive positions in the biggest companies. I think a main reason for this is that quotas are not approaching the real problem in a way, which are, I think, the types of gender sorting processes in the big companies, which, which makes it very hard to combine family life with, a, with an active career to, to reach the top levels. And as everything we've talked about, has generally life for women outside of the, the metrics to do with these specific policies, uh, is life different? Are these countries broadly less sexist in attitude amongst men? Is um, domestic violence lower? Is sexism in advertising lower as a result of everything we've talked about? I'm not saying is it perfect because we know that there are no utopias, but just talk a, a bit generally about what the women's movement have done and what successive governments have done has, has changed life in that more general way for women. Of course, we have gender stereotype commercials. The Me Too movement has been uh, strong also in the Nordic countries. There's uh, violence against women and so on. But I still think there is a more egalitarian culture when it comes to gender. It's a clear, strong norm that, that women should be fully employed, for example, that having children should not affect your uh, situation on the labor market. But still, I think the gendering of culture, in a way, is present in all industrialized modern societies, in a way. Alison, can I ask you, just listening to this whole conversation, what are the lessons you think we should learn, if this isn't a sort of just far too broad a question, from all of this history and the advances that Nordic countries have seen compared to us? I think the key lesson here is, is that you can't just legislate gender equality away. You need to be thinking about how actively to promote equality through policy. And I think we're in danger in this country, particularly as we move into net zero, if all those jobs are greening jobs in steel, energy, construction, retrofit of, and those all those industries being male-dominated, of exactly reproducing the gender equality that we have in this knowledge economy into the net zero economy. So what's different here is the idea that governments, you know, often populated by women, bringing women's issues into debate and policy are saying, look, if we don't do something, we'll just reproduce inequalities. So even our free childcare offer in the UK starts after, I think, nine or 12 months. So that leaves women out of the labour market for that amount of time. It doesn't apply to unemployed women. So there's this kind of childcare benefits nexus, which kind of locks you out of rejoining the labour market earlier, or even when you are unemployed, having childcare so that you could retrain or reskill. It's the impact of our policy system, if you like, because it is not taking into account the different positions of men and women and providing policy on an equitable basis. That is giving people what they need to be able to participate. And I think that's what we have 
drawn on from the Nordic countries. It's about setting up the machinery of government, the gender equality councils, the equality leads within the civil service that we have to interrupt the policymaking machine before it decides on the policy and then consults on it after, but actually to bring an evidence base at the front end of policymaking so that we're using policy to promote equality, not just avoid creating harms. What has been your experience of this in Wales, Alison? Wales is a small country and we have access to politicians and and civil servants and they actively seek the engagement of people from the women's movement and from business and the trade unions in their policymaking. So it's that level of engagement, I think, to inform policy to create equality, which is really another important factor. And of course, we no longer have the Women's National Coalition, the organisation that policymakers in Westminster would go to, to consult on women's issues. So I think it is easier in the devolved nations to ensure there's a wider range of actors involved in policymaking. Mara and Kristen, tell us, as we look enviously, and, and you're not saying that everything is perfect in the Nordics, I know you're clearly not saying that, what is the single biggest lesson, if that's not an unfair question, that we should be learning for the UK? Yeah, I would like uh, to say first what we have been talking a lot about today, and that is arrangements that facilitates work-life balance. I think that's very important. Uh, I, I think each country has to find their, their way, but I think state subsidies are necessary. But I also think what, what Alison is talking about, about the gender mainstreaming is very important because there's, there's more to gender equality than the relationship between work and family. But also gender mainstreaming, all studies show that it's, it's really hard and it's important to find out how uh, to implement it in a successful way. It's of course that attitudes needs to change. We have mentioned violence against women, which shows the worst side of our societies. And, and really, we really need to find ways to get rid of it. We have not been more successful in the Nordic countries than in other, other countries. But, but I really think that there's this thought that if we want to live in an equal society which respects human rights, if, if we make the society more egalitarian, it's a lot of benefits. We need to use our, our resources, which in both women and men and, and other genders, to give everyone equal opportunities in life. Well, look, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we're really grateful to all of you. Alison, Kristen, Mari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, wowza. That was a conversation to get your head around, wasn't it? It was It was sprawling. I mean, I don't know if it was naive of us to think that we could find the secret ingredient. But I feel we got a lot of the ingredients I there. think when you say sprawling, what you mean is wide-ranging. I do mean wide-ranging, yeah. Rich. Exactly, yes. So I, I thought it was really interesting at a number of levels, because as you say, we were sort of looking for the secret sauce, really. Clearly, and there's a whole history to this, which we didn't go into, a lot of these countries have quite egalitarian traditions more generally than, than gender equality. I, I didn't feel, oh, because these countries are focused on inequality, then it was easy for the women's movement. I, I felt like that was a factor of it, but it was only only a part of but, it. But, but here's the thing in which I was thinking in the conversation. I mean, OK, maybe these countries have more egalitarian traditions than us, but we produced the NHS, which is a pretty egalitarian idea. So it's not like we're America. Mm. It's not like we're sort of immune to egalitarian ideas. Yeah. Or the basic state pension, maybe that's in a slightly different category. But, you know, so it's not like we don't have egalitarian traditions to draw on. It's just that they weren't drawn on in quite the same way. By the way, we shouldn't ignore there was the Equal Pay Act, Barbara Castle in the 1970s, pushes on childcare in the 1990s. So, so you know, it's not like we haven't... There's not, none of this. We don't want to sort of write this out of the script. But, but where does the egalitarian impulse find its home? Is there a slightly depressing but simple answer in that then, that we look to all the same things, but a lot of it happened when we didn't have social democratic governments in power but conservative governments in power so what, the, the 1970s yeah and 80s, so, so it's the versions of some of this stuff that we ended up with are very watered down compared to the nordics well that might be right so you mean it was a sort of historical timing thing around the sort of 30 40 years ago mm. that they sort of supercharged it forward except I mean, they, I quote in my book a speech by Olaf Palmer, who was the um, male, obviously, Prime Minister of Sweden. I think it's from the early 70s about the role of men and the role of women. And I suspect that is a more progressive speech on gender equality than a Labour Prime Minister would have made. If we were to conclude that these things are just all, um, I think they the historians i think call this path dependent in other words sort of just de- defined by the particular circumstances of the country then it would be it would be pretty depressing because we just conclude there was nothing you could do about it i do think that what came through in those conversations is the role of movements 
they obviously did have a big impact, didn't they? Yeah, I love hearing about the, the women's day off or the women's strike in Iceland in 1975 because it just seems to have this profound effect not only on then the, the policies that were made by government in the coming years, but also I'm really into it from a point of view of men understanding women's lives. I think so often things move because of story, because people understand what life is like for somebody else. And that that seems to be this big driver in Iceland. That seems to be one of the biggest effects of that women's strike. Two other things. One is this phrase that we're in this together with the state. That feels very alien to me in terms of the British relationship with the state. Yeah, that's a good point. And then the the other thing was, uh, I think I've said this before, I think a a comprehensive policy on parental leave and childcare is is the next NHS-sized idea that a political party needs to run on in this country. Yeah, Yeah. no, I I think that's a good, I think that's a really good point. I do agree with that. I, I tell you what also interested me was what Alison was saying about Wales. I mean, we quite come back to Wales quite a lot in, on this podcast. Um, and the very fact of having a sort of new parliament in Wales obviously led them to take a step back and look at some of these questions. And then the related thing is, we talk a lot about policy, this policy or that policy. She's saying you've got to look across the board at policy and the, and the sort of whole gender impact assessment And then her point about climate, which I thought was really important, really fascinating, which is, you know, we've got to make sure that the net zero agenda isn't just a jobs for men agenda. And and he's really got to be thought through in that respect. So so I thought that was interesting. I, I think the fundamental point I take out of this is there's nothing inevitable or sort of written in the stars, which means one country can have these policies and another country can't. And it is open to us as you say, on something like, you know, parental leave, childcare, to make the decision to learn from others and and do a lot better. In our road, if somebody gets new garden furniture, within six months, half the street's got new garden furniture because they look at what the neighbours have got and think, oh, that looks nice, I'll have that. Why, why do we not do that in this country with the Nordics? I mean, that's true. Well, maybe you can't see the Nordics from your window. Right. Hopefully this this podcast this week has been the window. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. I think there's a very rent-a-ghost-ish quality to to your... Uh, I consider that a high compliment. Maybe you and I should do a reboot of Rent-a-Ghost. Like cosplay? Maybe I should try and get my kids to watch Rent-a-Ghost. When you let your spirit move. How successful ever is it when you try and get your kids to watch something with nineteen seventy really like pacing? Faulty Towers. There's actually a Faulty Towers. You can do a Faulty Towers dinner. And Justine was thinking about booking them a Faulty Towers dinner for Christmas. I just think for me, it's just like, oh. You just don't like to be the uh, the focus of attention. Which is strange because you very much do like to be the focus, the focus of, of attention. attention. So there's a paradox here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, I've got an email I wanted to uh, mention. We always love hearing from people. Uh, You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. Please do get in touch with us. Uh, We really, really appreciate it. Um, And this one came from Ellie Smith. 
Uh, and subject is giving Ed a reason to be cheerful, which sort of obviously caught my eye. Dear Ed and Jeff, in a blatant way to promote our own podcast, First Past the Podcast, and to give Ed a reason to be cheerful, please listen to the timestamp 2010, ironically, sorry Ed, where Ed gets a spontaneous shout-out from the gang who are all politics A-level students. It's available on Spotify. Ellie, Eve, Cam and Zoe, the FPTP team. I think there is a electoral systems partner in that podcast title it is i was thinking that's that's not a bad name for a podcast is it first past the podcast well well done ellie eve cam and zoe that's like two shout outs and we'd love to hear from you if you've got thoughts on gender equality on other historical issues we'd like you'd like to talk about or when we get back to our sort of regular programming uh other subject other reasons to be cheerful other big ideas that you'd like us to be talking about thank you to mari tigan to Kristin askers dotir who was very polite and understanding about our pronunciation issues and to dr alison parkin emma caution produces our podcast if you've ever wondered why this sounds coherent that's why so thank you to emma uh, for these episodes we're working with gareth evans from 1860 who has uh, assembled these guests and put all this together for us. So thank you Great to Gareth job. and to Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. And Joel Pierce, who used to do our backup back up and research and no longer does. The quitter. But we thank him for his service in the past. Anybody else you want to bring up? Alex Feisbrice, who used to work Oh, with Alex Feisbrice, what yeah. a guy. Gail Loftus is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. But of course, formerly it was designed by... Emily Power. He's been wearing the robe. He's been off to the rave. And these have been reasons to be cheerful.